This message first aired on the radio on June 3rd, 2003. Yesterday, if you remember, we opened a series, and it's a series of messages that I'd like to bring until the job is done, called The Gift and the Prize. And just to, re- just to review uh, a little bit about that, remember that we discovered that God has a gift and God has a prize and that the two things should not be confused. The gift of God is eternal life. There is a prize of a calling on high in Christ Jesus. And we found that uh, a gift is freely given and that a gift is earned. We found out yesterday, uh, I hope not controversially, but I'm sure it's controversial to some who either have not heard the truth or who have heard it distorted from others, that uh, uh, salvation being the gift of God, there's no such thing as a salvation that is not earned. All uh, salvation from sins is something that is absolutely and positively earned. It is simply not earned by the one receiving it. The Lord Jesus Christ who knew no, he who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness, righteousness of God in him, uh, came to this earth for a single purpose. He did not come to this earth to show us the way. He came to this earth to be the way. He did not come to this earth to teach us how to live here below, but to save us from our sins here below. He did not uh, come to uh, help us do better. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. But the Lord Jesus Christ... He, the Lord Jesus Christ won our salvation the old-fashioned way, as some would say. He earned it. He absolutely and positively earned the salvation of every man. And in so understanding this uh, work that Jesus Christ did once for all uh, and forever, we come to some terms that are good Bible terms. They're good, uh, they're good Scripture terms, but they fall into the vernacular of... Uh, Maybe we could even call it a theological vernacular, although I really hate that term. Uh, But we have a few words that need some further explication, some contextualization. Uh, And I know that today we're in a society where 20 seconds of commercial is about all the message we can seem to listen to, or 22 and a half minutes of uh, situation comedies, or banal game shows, or, or even... 20 minutes of banal radio is about all we can listen to. And in that kind of a world, I'm a little bit of a disadvantage because I have a one-hour radio broadcast here that is dedicated to the proclamation of the Bible. And not everything in the Bible is simple. However, the truth about our Lord Jesus Christ dying for our sins and winning salvation for us is a simple message of the Bible. So, uh, But as we deal with that, and the way and the mechanics of the way that the gift of God comes to us, which is eternal life, which we call salvation, the way that that comes to us needs to be learned and understood, uh, and some of it's maybe a little bit maybe a little bit technical or a little more complicated than you would first think. So today we're going to go a little further into how salvation works, and we're going to look at an example of how it did work. And when we go to look for at our example, we're going to look at the example that we almost always look to in the Scripture for how the grace of God works. We're going to look at Abraham. But before we do that, I want to tell you that we're going to talk about three theological terms. 
today, or Bible terms. I'd rather just call them Bible terms. We'll, we'll leave the, the theology to theologians, and uh, they can spend that uh, some other time. But we want to talk about substitution. We want to talk about imputation, and we want to talk about justification. All of these things are bound up in the free gift of God as salvation comes to us. Substitution, imputation, and justification. You see, because we have salvation given to us, and by that I mean eternal life, because we have eternal life given to us sovereignly by God, when we are in a helpless condition of being a condemned sinner, not only by our actions, but by our nature. Because we're in that condition, we need to have somebody come along and save us. Uh, I enjoy hearing people tell me that Jesus Christ is their Savior, but when you think about a Savior, there's an implication there about who you are. When you say, I have a Savior, you are declaring a certain condition about yourself, and that really is a helpless condition. No one who is less than helpless needs a savior. They need a helper. They need a teacher. They need a guide. Jesus Christ is not helper, teacher, and guide. He is Lord and Savior. And so when you say, I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, which is a good Bible term, a good way of saying things, much better than I ask Jesus into my heart. I do not know what that means. You could not explain to me what that means. But when you say, I've received Jesus Christ as my Savior, you are implicitly saying something about yourself, and what you are saying is, I need a Savior. Yesterday, we pointed out that the mother of Jesus, Mary, uh, the wife of Joseph, and the mother of others, uh, declared when she heard that uh, miraculously overshadowed by the Holy Ghost, she would give birth to the Savior of the world, she said in her Magnificat, I rejoice in God my Savior. Now she said she had a Savior. That said more about her than it did about her Savior. That said that she was a helpless sinner, uh, bound up in sin not only by deed but by nature, and so was helpless to save herself. Now I say that because I grew up in Omaha, I went 13 years to a Catholic school. No, I did not flunk. I went to kindergarten there. Uh, I uh, have uh, Omaha is a very Roman Catholic town, and uh, the way I grew up, uh, my my childish heart, which I did have a, a a soft spot for God and a heart for God, as all children do, my heart was twisted to the pursuit of Mary and. Uh, 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 dead, dead, uh, dead saints, as they called them, and uh, and away from God. And Mary was elevated beyond the position uh, that she's obviously given in Scripture. Really elevated above the rest of the human race. Now that now let me say that's not Mary's fault. I one day I'll, I'll meet her in heaven, and it's not her fault. She didn't do this. It has nothing to do with her. Just like that picture that's on your wall of Jesus is not him, this story about her is not her. She was the mother of our Lord, she was a person in need of salvation, and she was saved. And she's a saved sinner like me, and uh, that's a wonderful thing in and of itself. But others with an agenda that has nothing to do with the Bible have, have, uh, have elevated her to a status. 
that's just not accurate. And uh, because of where I live and the way I grew up, I usually go out of my way to point that out. That being said, being in a helpless state, needing a savior, not a helper, not a guide, but a savior, we have to find some way that that salvation is communicated to us. And because it's coming from God, I say communicate to us, given to us, and because it's coming from God, it has to be fair. God cannot deny himself. You know there are certain things God can't do? People like to stymie preachers like myself with questions that they think are erudite, but they're really a little bit foolish, like, for example, in my days of open-air preaching on college campuses, I could almost always count on this question being asked, can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? And the answer is no, he can't. There are all kinds of things that God can't do that you do all the time. For example, God can't lie. Now you, you're a liar, me, I'm a liar, we're all liars, God's found true, but we lie all the time, and here God can't do it ever. Uh, we deny ourselves. We're full of contradictions. There are many things we can do that God doesn't do. We're full of contradictions. So today we say we like our coffee black. Tomorrow we say we like it with cream and sugar. We're inconsistent. We, we say things. We don't remember things. Somebody will tell us, you said such and such. I say, I'll never say that. Then we have an argument about it. Because we're full of contradictions, because we're, frankly, full of sin, and we have all these things. God has none of these things. He doesn't do any of them. He can't deny himself. And, he can, and, and because he's all just, he cannot be unfair. So salvation actually must be fair. And it is fair. God concludes all under sin, because, we're all, because all have sinned. We're all concluded under sin. And God offers to us freely his salvation on the basis of faith and faith only. Therefore, there's no merit required. There's no effort required. There's no sweat, no work, merely faith. And faith itself does not come by a working of the will. Faith does not come because you've worked up some method of reasoning. Faith does not come because you've lived a nice life or a lousy life. Faith comes one way, only one way. Faith comes by hearing, and that hearing is the Word of God. Now, you want to know why I'm on the radio? I looked at the Bible in Romans chapter 10, and I found out that the only way the Word of God comes to anyone is by a preacher. I'm a preacher. Not my decision, but I'm happy about it. I'm content with it. God made me a preacher. Uh, I found out, uh, oh, when I was... A th almost 30 years old, I found out that God had actually created me a, a preacher from the time that hit, I was, a th as, as we say, a, a twinkle in my father's eye. And um, he made it known to me very clearly that my work was to teach his word and to preach his word. You, you may find that arrogant. I don't really care. You may find that uh, self-promoting. I don't really care about that either. Uh, you may like that. I also don't care about that. Uh, this is uh, uh, something that any preacher of God's word must discover for himself from God alone that he has been created by God to preach his word. Now, I digress a bit, but I want to go in to, to, to talk to you about the way that salvation must work if it's going to be fair. And it, it must work the only way it does work. Isn't that nice? 
And that is by substitution of the Lord Jesus Christ, he in your place, he in my place. Not a real complicated word, substitution, but what is a, a, a bit of a, of a unusual term is that that Bible term or that theological term is the vicarious death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, only God can truly act vicariously. Now, there are lawyers who want to tell you that you act vicariously in behalf of all kinds of people if you own things. That's just not a fact. You've got enough problem, i got enough problem, just acting for ourselves, just handling our own self. But remember that God is busy keeping you inhaling. He's busy keeping your heart beating. He's busy keeping the earth all holding together. He's keeping the electrons in orbit, if electrons orbit. He's keeping uh, uh, protons in a nucleus, if, 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 those are, if that's actually what a nucleus is like. He is the force of the universe that holds everything together. And here's another nice thing about God. He's, I say he's busy. I anthropomorphize. God keeps, your, keeps you breathing. He keeps the oxygen in the air for you and all the animals and the plants. He holds the earth together. He does all this stuff, and it never tires him out, and it never distracts him from anything. And, and so he is able to vicariously substitute himself in our place. After all, he's the judge. And after all, he is the one who did not deserve to die. And so by faith, we accept the work that Jesus Christ did in our own place for the work that we cannot do ourselves. And so he substitutes his death for the death we... He substitutes his death that he did not deserve for the death which we do deserve. And he substitutes the, etern the life that he now lives. Uh, we, uh, we obtain the life that he now has while we're in this life that is passing so quickly. So it's a wonderful and it's a fair deal by God for all. And isn't that nice? And here's another nice fact, and it's often overlooked when it's often quoted. The Bible teaches us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And you can have eternal life like I do if you'll believe. But But I want to focus in on that God loved the world. When, when we think of God loving the world, we may be careless and think that God loves like we love. God doesn't love in the way that we love. We love because. If, 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 you, if you love something, somebody say, well, I just love that, or I just love that person, and the next word is because, and some nice thing about that person. God does not love the world because of anything about the world. God loves the world because God is love and God, because God acts merely and totally out of his own self. So we could actually say that God loves the world based on a principle that God holds. Based on a principle that God holds. So that, and because it's based on principle, it never changes. If I love you because you're cute, when you're no longer cute, I don't love you anymore. But if I love you based on a principle that doesn't change, for example, if I love you because God tells me I'm supposed to love you, then I can refer back to God and see if he's changed. Well, he hasn't because God never changes. I can see if he's changed, and then I can come back and say, no, I still love you because God has told me to. 
and uh, and and, be, and that makes it a right thing. So I love you for that reason. Maybe you say, well, don't you love me because I'm still cute? Well, no, I don't. And that's good for you because sometimes you're not cute and then my love would stop. Well, God's love doesn't stop because it comes out of his own self. And so God loves the world despite the fact that he's angry with the wicked sinner every single day. I think this is something that's overlooked. You know, people come out and and the gospel is a, is a full message about about God's love for the world, but it's a love based on principle. And they tell the sinners, well, he loves sinners. Yeah, he loves sinners. While we were yet sinners, he died for us, but he's angry with the wicked every day. And so his love and his anger uh, burn together, and he will not tolerate the rejection of his only provision for salvation, for eternal life, which is faith in his Son. And yesterday we also talked about why it is that people don't believe. It's not because they don't understand. It's not because they're too short, too tall, too dumb, too smart, uh, too weak, too strong. It's because they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Now, when we talk about the way that salvation works, we need to turn to the Bible, so we'll quickly look here we'll quickly turn here to Romans chapter 4 and we'll take the example that we ought to take when we want to see how faith works and how God's salvation works I have a, a good friend who who tells people when a question is answered and is asked in any kind of Bible study and you don't know the answer always guess Abraham you've got a good chance that you have the right answer well the the passage we want to look at is about Abraham but it's in Romans chapter 4 And if you're in your car, you can't turn to it, so I'll read it to you. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, that is, he's our father pertaining to the flesh, not God our father, what shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Now I've bitten off a few things I need to chew here. And the two, thing, the two other words that I want to discuss, discuss in light of these uh, few uh, verses of Scripture, these few words from God, is, is the word imputation and the word justification. Now let me, let me start. Start out, however, by distinguishing, as as we did yesterday, and as we'll continue to do throughout this uh, study of of the gift and the prize, the distinction between grace and works. Uh, it says in in uh, uh, verse four. Now, to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. This word reward is the payback. It's simply a payback. It's like a payday. When you work for your boss and it's payday, he is not giving you a gift. He is giving you your wage. He's giving you what you earned. So you don't, you don't look to your boss every two weeks or every month or whenever it is that you find a way to be paid. You don't look to your boss to give you a gift at the end of the pay period. And I've been a boss and I've been an employee, and, I've, and I know that I neither considered that my boss was giving me a gift when I got my check, nor did I feel like I was giving gifts out to my employees 
when I handed them a check. When you work for something, it is a debt, and it is owed by the employer to the one that works. Well, let me tell you something, friends. God doesn't owe you anything. If you get what you deserve from God, it is the lake that burns with fire forever and ever. You are enemies of God in your mind naturally. And uh, and so God doesn't owe you anything. So there is no debt that God has accumulated to you in the way of of eternal life. And that's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans about Abraham. He said, Abra- what did Abraham find out? If Abraham were justified by works, he could glory. He could say, well, I, I got my salvation the old-fashioned way. I earned it myself. But he can't say that. Not before God. The Scripture says, and this is Genesis chapter 15, and, and maybe we'll get to look at it, maybe not, at least today. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, that's a wonderful phrase of Scripture. It's repeated a few times throughout the Scripture. It is central to the understanding of the way that uh, eternal life comes to anyone. It comes to Abraham this If it comes to Abraham this way, it comes to everyone this way. And what did, what did Abraham find out? Abraham found out that his faith was reckoned to him or counted unto him or imputed to him in place of or for righteousness, or just as if it was righteousness. In other words, Abraham was given absolute righteousness, not that you could find any if you looked at Abraham, but it was, give, it was counted to him, it was account, accounted to him as righteousness by God because he believed. And what did he believe? He believed the word of God concerning his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll, hopefully we'll get to look at that. But when we talk about imputation and how God imputes righteousness to men and women, let me just say that the best way to understand this is to take the word as it is. It's an accounting term. It's an accounting term. If when you go to the bank and you take that check that you earn to the bank and after the government has taken its pieces and whatever and you've got something left, well, I trust, and you take it into the bank, uh, you deposit it in the bank, and when you look at your bank statement, that check is accounted or imputed to your account. It is placed on your account. If you were one day to look at your account and find that the check was not imputed to your account, you'd be angry and you'd call the bank and you'd start that whole process. But let's say, just for the sake of an example, that one day you deposited your $200 check after taxes into your account and you got a statement back and you discovered that millions of dollars, let's just say $10 million, was, was, was accounted to your account, your first inclination would be, boy, I better withdraw this before anybody finds out. But let's assume you're a little more honest than that, and you check with the bank and you say, there must be some mistake, Mr. Banker, because $10 million has been posted to my account, which I never deposited. And the banker comes back to you and he said, well, that has been deposited to you, but deposited into your account by someone who has plenty of money to make it good. That is real. Your account is properly 
uh, imputed with $10 million. Maybe that would make you happy. Maybe that would make you happy. I think it would make me happy, but not for very long. Uh, I know I know that by experience, uh, uh, not that I've ever experienced such a thing as, as that in a bank, but I have experienced better than that as a human being because God, $10 million can't buy me, not only can it not buy me love, it can't buy me righteousness. I mean, there are people that have tried to take millions of dollars and buy righteousness with it, and they parade around about how their charity goes, and they give money to this thing and that thing, and they want that money to be accounted to them for righteousness, but it's not. It's just accounted to them for as dollars and cents. But God Almighty, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, puts onto your account absolute righteousness. And you say, well, what is absolute righteousness? Well, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it is absolutely righteous you say but you're not absolutely righteous I say well my account says I am my account says that I have absolute righteousness uh, uh, imputed to me by the one who makes all the decisions about that by God himself so what do I care what you say about me not being righteous when God has said I am that is imputation that is imputation. And the result of the person who has had imputed righteousness, the result of that person is justification. Verse 2 of Romans chapter 4, verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, he had whereof to glory, but not before God. He was not justified in this particular case by works. He was justified by the imputation of the righteousness of God on the basis of the grace of God or the goodness of God through faith in the word of God that came to him. So now we have a justified man. One of the problems we have with justification is how misunderstood it is. We like to tell people that justification means just as if I never sinned. It doesn't mean that at all. After all, we have a man who never sinned. We have a man in the Bible who never sinned that's not the Lord Jesus Christ, and that was Adam. And he went for a while, and he never sinned, and he never sinned, and all of a sudden he sinned, and he was in bad shape after that. Abraham and I are both in far better shape than that. It is not just as if we never sinned. We're talking about the way that the grace of God comes to us. We're talking about the way that salvation works. I have so much that I'd like to tell you about uh, all, the, all the wonderful things that God has bundled up into the way of salvation and how orderly and... Um, amazing it really is and i hope i do uh, uh, something of a job i know i won't do an adequate job but i hope i do something of a job to communicate that to you we're talking about abraham we're talking about how it was that he received justification by imputed righteousness that is to say to his account was placed the righteousness of christ and he was thereby justified And we want to talk a little bit about justification. As I come across Christians, most Christians uh, do not have a very good sense of what justification truly means, and many of them had been taught wrongly in their Sunday schools or out of the pulpits or off the radio or who knows, uh, that being justified means that it was just as if they've never sinned. And I want to tell you, that's a hopeless state, just as if you've never sinned. God erases all your sins, and uh, what do you go right out and do? You go right out and sin. Uh, if, if justification were merely just as if you'd never sinned before, 
you'd only enjoy it up until the time that you sinned again, and you might not even know. That would happen so fast you might not even know it. Uh, you might not even have time to to be happy about it because in the being ha- in the way that you might be happy, you'd be sinning and then you'd lose it. So justification is not just as if I've never sinned, despite the cleverness of that little that little uh, talk. It is far far better than that. I am in such a better con- position, having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ than Adam was, because I have the righteousness of God imputed to me, I have already been declared righteous. Adam was not declared righteous. He walked around, hadn't sinned, tended the garden, talked with God, um, was was there with Eve, uh, I believe for a very short period of time, by the way, before he sinned. And um, but But God never declared him righteous. The question was still open. It was still up in the air as to whether he was righteous or not. It was as if, well, we'll see. You know, I've mentioned to you uh, that I was raised Roman Catholic. That's why I'm so glad to be a Christian instead of a Roman Catholic, instead of subscribing to Roman Catholicism. Uh, I mean, I don't have anything wrong with the the people who subscribe that I don't have with everybody else. The problem is that's just not the way of salvation. We'll see or is not a good term. That is not a happy that is not a happy term to me. I remember when I'd tell my father how things were going to be with me. He'd, he'd confront me about my ways and I'd say, "Well, from now on I'm going to do this and that." And my father would say, "Well, we'll see." I knew what that meant. I knew that meant he doesn't believe me for one minute, and he's right. I won't do all these things that I am promising to do. Do you know what organization I belong to, friends? I do not belong to the Promise Keepers. I'm happy to tell you that. I am a charter member of the Promise Breakers. I am a guy who all my life, whenever I promised, I broke my promises. Uh, I don't do promising. I don't do promising. I let my the Bible says let your yes be yes and your no be no. What about promising? You say, well, what about your vow to your wife? Yes, I vowed to my wife, but there are all kinds of other promises that I've made to my wife that I've never kept. And so anybody that's married, they have those very same things. That's why we we're commanded not to let the sun go down on our anger. We're commanded that because we get plenty angry with one another, being promise breakers and being charter members of that club. So. Don't worry, you don't have to join my club. There's nothing to join. You're already in it. You just need to acknowledge that you are already a charter member, just like me, of the Promise Breakers Club. So I'm happy to not be in Adam's spot. I'm in no jeopardy. I already have righteousness uh, uh, given to me. And so did it. And that's because I see that that's how it went with Abraham. And how did it come to Abraham? Well, nicely, it came to Abraham the same way it came to me came to Abraham because the word of the Lord came to him. He believed it, and that was that. Genesis chapter 15. If you're reading along your Bible, I'll give you a moment to turn to it. But here's what it says. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. It's interesting that God starts out with fear not. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ started out with fear not many times. God starts out with fear not. Why does he tell us to fear not? Because we're because we fear. We have fear. Fear has torment. That's our guilty conscience. That's our sins getting a hold of us. It's pathetic. 
that's not the bad that's not the bad news there's good news despite the fact that you're your pathetic self that you're easily terrorized that you're in fear that you have a bad conscience god comes to you and says fear not abram i am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward and abram said lord god what will you give me seeing i go childless and the steward of my house is this eliezer of damascus and abram said behold to me thou hast given no seed and lo one born in my house is mine heir that's the condition that Abram and Sarah had. They had no children. He had no heir. He was looking at the fact that his life was going to be a footprint in water, a mere vapor. He had the, the mature point of view as an old man that life passes so fast, that life is just a passing shadow. Life is uh, uh, rapidly uh, dissipates from us. It's like steam that rises out of a pot. And uh, Abram had this, and he said, look, my life is just going to dissipate. It's going to be meaningless because I have no heir. I have no one to carry on my name uh, and so forth. And verse 4 says this wonderful thing. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, the son of Eliezer of Damascus. That was his his head steward of his household, legally, under the codes of Hammurabi. Remember, there's, this is Abraham, and this is 400-plus uh, years before there was any law of Moses. And under that code, the, the inheritance uh, passed, if you didn't have uh, any children, would pass to your senior servant, and therefore to his heirs. So he said, one born in my house is mine heir, and the Lord said, Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said, So shall thy seed be. And he, that is Abraham, or Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him for righteousness. Now, very brief passage here, but this is the one that the Apostle, under the inspiration of, of God Almighty himself, uh, God the Holy Ghost, and, and under the inspiration of that, quotes this passage out of the book of Genesis to, dis, to describe to us how it is that we are saved. And here's the little nutshell. The word of the Lord came to Abram. It was about the seed, not seeds as of many, but seed as of one, his seed as of one. That seed, we find out from the book of Galatians and elsewhere in the New Testament, was not Isaac, but the Lord Jesus Christ, though Isaac, a, a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, Isaac also promised to Abraham. Uh, but that he believed in the word of the Lord concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and that faith that he had was imputed to him for righteousness. <laughs> Now, I want to take a little sideline here so that we can set up a little bit where we're going after we discuss the gift and the prize and tell you that it's no accident that God told him to look at the stars of the heavens. He said, look up in the stars of the heavens. See if you can count them. See if you can count them. And uh, could Abraham count them? Of course not. I mean, the, the thought there is that they are countless. Now, God can count them. There is a number. There is a finite number of stars, and uh, uh, 
I wouldn't be surprised if that number matched up with another number that that we can find in the scripture that we don't we don't know what it is. But I wouldn't be surprised to find out one day that we could that we could uh, add those up uh, that those two numbers equal each other. Um, but he told him to look into the into the sky and see the stars of heaven. If and, and he have an innumerable number of seed innumerable number not just one or two or ten or 16 like as i have 16 grandchildren and 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 two coming that's 18 uh not not some small number like 16 or 18 but an innumerable number so shall thy seed be and he told him interestingly to look up into the the sky and see the the stars of heaven now not only did god tell abram abram that but later uh, when his name became Abraham, after he sacrificed Isaac, uh, God told Abraham uh, something else. He told him, In blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven. This is from Genesis 22, verse 17. And as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And that was concerning the uh, Abraham obeying the voice of the Lord concerning the sacrifice uh, of his only son Isaac. Now, I get a little ahead, but I want to I want to uh, tantalize you a little bit with the scripture. I want to whet your appetite. God gave to uh, Abraham two places to look. First, first, he told him to look into the heavens. And if you see in Genesis 22, 17, he also repeats uh, the the, uh, the, uh, promise to look at the stars of the heaven. First, he has him look at the stars of the heaven. So Abraham's first look is heavenly. His second look, he says, now look at the sand of the seashore. That's, That's an earthly look. Maybe those two numbers equal each other. I've... I wouldn't be surprised. It would be just like God to have the exact same number of sands on the seashore as stars in the heaven. Uh, that's my speculation, but let me just tell you, I'm, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if those end up being the exact same number, but they're not about the exact same subject. The seed of Abraham is twofold. There is, such, there is often twofoldness of truth in the Scripture, but Abram, Abraham has two aspects to his seed, the heavenly and the earthly. And this is one of the great divisions of Scripture. We'll we'll come to it anon, I trust. But one of the great divisions of Scripture found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the apostle says, I don't want to give offense to anyone, neither to the Jew nor to the Gentile, neither to the church of God. Let me tell you, the Apostle Paul distinguished three different people on earth, three different kinds of people, Jew, Gentile, Church of God. And that is one of the foundational divisions of Scripture that we need to keep in mind. Do you know, one of the great challenges left to us, if we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, is to build a doctrinal uh, structure in our lives whereby we can understand the times that we live in, the Word of God, uh, this is one, this is the great privilege. This is the wonderful occupation that God gives to us here while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
Let me tell you, my friends, if you're putting your enjoyment in the things that you do or the things that you have or you, <clears throat> excuse me, even the people that you love, you're going to be disappointed. But if you look to the scriptures of God for your enjoyment, do you know that will first, it'll never be taken away from you. Things, Many things can be taken away from you in life, but God will never take his word away from you if you make that your pursuit. And the second thing, my friends, is that, that will, it, it will never disappoint you. God's word will meet you in every circumstance. They that believe in the Lord will never be disappointed. They'll never be ashamed. And thirdly, the word of God will never go away. We will have the word of God in eternity future forever and ever and ever. We will still be unfolding wonderful truths out of it. It will become better and better to us as as all of eternity unfolds. So I just commend, I commend that and note that enjoying the scripture is something that is every God wants every Christian to do, and it's easy to do, but it must be learned to do. Now that division... Jew-Gentile Church of God, that never changes. That, that There will always be that division. Into all eternity will be the division of Jew-Gentile Church of God. Now today, the Bible teaches us that God has broken down the division in, in Christ. God has broken down the division between Jew and Gentile. That does not mean there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. There's a huge difference between Jews and Gentiles. Ask a Jew. Ask a Gentile. There's no question there's an enormous difference between Jews and Gentiles. But what there ought not to be is any difference between Jew and Gentile in that third group that is neither Jew nor Gentile, but is the church of God. Because those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in this day, today, such as me, and I hope just such as you, we are in the church of God, and it is not that we are both Jews and Gentiles that have gotten over our differences. We are neither Jews nor are we Gentiles. I do not believe that a Jew is a completed Jew when he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ any more than I believe that a Gentile is a completed Gentile when he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not a Gentile. I was a Gentile. I'm not a Gentile. I'll never be a Jew. Uh, I don't want what God has for the Jews. God has something special for the nation of Israel. It's not mine. I don't covet it. I don't covet my neighbor's goods. I've got something better. And this wonderful thing is pictured, like all wonderful things in the faith seem to be, pictured in Abraham because he had a heavenly seed and he had an earthly seed. And I want to tell you something else that I found to be overwhelmingly enjoyable when I, when I first uh, heard it and learned of it. And that is this, not only is there a distinction between God's heavenly seed, uh, or Abraham's heavenly seed, which is, God's heaven, which is God's heavenly people, and God's earthly people, which is Abraham's earthly seed. Not only is there a distinction between them, that is into eternity, but they are elected at different times. Now, when I read my Bible about myself, I read it in Ephesians chapter 1, and I find out, I didn't know this when I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, as I said yesterday, and as I still tell people, I hardly knew what, I knew that I believed in Jesus Christ, but I had no idea how wonderful that is, how permanent it was, or all the implications. I learned that through studying the scripture. And here's one of the things I learned. Uh, I learned that I was chosen in Christ Jesus, and according to the King James Version in Ephesians chapter 1, I was chosen in him before 
the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. And I find that phrase, before the foundation of the world, and I could unfold a little bit at some other time maybe what that foundation of the world really means. But let's just take it as a, as a point in time. Uh, that I that there are, there are a couple of things I learned went on before the foundation of the world. One thing that went on was that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. Another thing I found out is that the Son determined to die for my sins before the foundation of the world. That He was foreordained to do that. Then I discover that I myself am chosen in Christ. That doesn't mean I existed before the foundation of the world. It meant that I was chosen in Christ, in his purpose, in his victories, in his divine plan, as one of his that he won and purchased with his own blood, that I was chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That is, And that is true not just of me, but that is true of every person who is in the church of God, who are the heavenly seed, of Abraham, God's heavenly people. When you when you look a little further, you look, for example, at Matthew chapter 5, you will see uh, in Matthew chapter 5, the first time the Lord Jesus Christ is discussed as the king, where the king comes, not born the king, but where it's future pictured in Genesis chapter 5 of his return to earth, and he comes to judge those who are on the earth, and the nations of the earth are lined up before him. And he judges uh, the, the, the sheep on one side and the goat on the other side. And he says to them, Come ye, ye chosen of my Father, from, from the foundation of the world. Israel and elect Gentiles are elected from the foundation of the world. The church of God elected before the foundation of the world. So not only does God have a distinction between the heavenly seed and the earthly seed, but he has a distinction even in their election. Well, that's deep stuff, and uh, hopefully we'll get to that to more of that uh, uh, deep stuff uh, after we've covered uh, this series with about God's gift and God's prize, but we're clearing for ourselves what God's gift is and how it works. We return back to to the story here of Abraham, of Abraham, and uh, we discover that that Abraham was a man who was justified. He's the the man. He's the the he's the man most documented in the scripture, and he's the man whose justification is so completely documented for us that we may not be misled by whatever happened before or by whatever happened after Abraham's time. Abraham believed the word of the Lord, and he believed the promise of the Lord. Listen, friends, I'm not asking you to believe any promises I give you. Uh, My promises aren't worth much. In fact, I'll tell you this. My promises are worthless. I don't want to give them to you. Uh, They're not worthless anyway. You're not missing anything uh, because I don't. But God's promises are absolutely sure, and when he when he says through his word that Abraham was justified because he believed God's promise, that is not only uh, not only a prediction about Abraham, it's not a prediction at all. Abraham had a current promise of salvation. Now, I've said one other thing, and I want to take up this word just briefly, and we'll take it up a little bit more as this series continues, but I also had mentioned the election of God as pertaining to God's uh, heavenly people 
and God's earthly people. And let me tell you something I believe about that. The election of God, which stands sure, is a very comfortable teaching, is a very comfortable doctrine. We'll go into it more later. But the reason that it's so comfortable is because we know that God loving the world was God acting out of his own self. We, we know from the, this side of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, from the good side of faith, we know that the fact that God chose me in Christ Jesus makes my, secure, makes my eternal life much, much more secure than if I were to give the thought and perish the thought that somehow I chose God instead of God choosing, choosing me. If I, cho- if I chose God, then my, my uh, eternal life would have something to do with my ability to choose my will, my own, my own effort. That would make me very insecure because I know a little bit about myself. But the election of God chosen in Christ Jesus is that to which we can look for the security of that which he said he has done, even in the dark night of faith when we doubt it. Um, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. That's not the end of the story with Abraham. We're going to look forward. Uh, we're not going to do it today, but we're going to look forward uh, a little bit into Abraham's life, and we're going to start discussing about how it is that Abraham was justified by faith and how it is that Abraham was justified by works, and we're going to take on that real big controversy, and we're going to find out that it ought not to be a controversy, and that uh, through looking at the Scripture, uh, we can go forward uh, from those kind of uh, hesitations that we have in our life, uh, in our lives of faith, and we can resolve them and go on to learn uh, what God has for us. Well, that's all I have for teaching today. I do want to uh, commend to you uh, uh, gathering together with other Christians, fellowshipping with other Christians. I want to remind uh, those Christian listeners that our fellowship, though it's enjoyable to have a meal together and though it's enjoyable to sing together, that our fellowship in our Lord Jesus Christ is around God's Word. And it is through God's Word that we have fellowship. Uh, I don't. I didn't get on the radio here, and I don't want this broadcast to be anything about preaching myself or, or whatever, or, or other men or whatever it is. But I can tell you that my experience has been that it's very difficult to have normal Christian fellowship in an ordinary Christian church, as the Bible would would advise us to do. And if you're having difficulty with that, go to our website, email me. They'll help you out with that a little bit, but we'd be happy to see you fellowship with us at Miller Community Church. Thank you for your attention today. BibleStudy.net. You can hear BibleStudy.net with John Malone, Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. here on AM 660 KCRO, Omaha.